What's up, everybody? Nate Leary back with more of We're the Inspiration. With some dark humor and brutal honesty, we're exploring the absurdity and normalcy of living with disabilities. Stories are told on this show, and everyone's is different. One by one, we're going to get to as many as we can while bringing you the most entertaining podcast about disabilities you'll ever hear. This week, I have with me someone I've wanted on since the beginning, but it wasn't possible till now. There's a lot he's done in television, movies, and radio. In fact, he has three times the radio experience that I do. But he's also disabled, that's true. Mr. Steve Ray, thank you for being this week's inspiration. Thank you for having me on, Nate. I've wanted to do this with you as well, and I realized today we've known each other 11, maybe even 12 years, going back that far to uh, when we worked together originally in radio. I thought it might be even longer than that, but... It might be, but based on some of the memories on social media, I can at least peg it to 11 or 12 years and probably four or five WWE events, one in particular where we took that long but wonderful drive from the Washington, D.C. area down to uh, Salem, Virginia to see um, TNA wrestling, which was very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. You got to meet a couple of legends down there, including Rob Van Dam. Yeah, I met him a couple times since also. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Did you bring it up? Do you remember what year we did that? Because maybe I met him before that. You know, my memory is shot. I don't think so. <laughs> I know we went down there. Yeah. It was in the Civic Auditorium down there in Salem. I just know there are wrestlers I've met multiple times. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. A lot of it is kind of a blur at this point because it's been a number of years. I know I went to work at WMAL, the radio station we're talking about. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. In 2009. Okay, that was the same year that I probably met him for the first time. Okay. I don't know. That's 11 years right there. Yeah. We're taping 11 or 12 years. Yeah, I started working for that station in 2006. And I know you were after me, so I just didn't remember when you joined. But it was kind of funny because I'd heard about you before I met you. And I found out, <laughs> I didn't hear anything bad, but oh, I heard about you before hear that. Heard about you before I met you. And when I did meet you, I realized, oh, okay, he's also a wrestling fan and he's also disabled. That's that interesting. Was... This, this can be a guy I could hang out with, despite the fact that you're like 20 years older than me. Easily. Uh, <laughs> and that was the beginning, that uh, kind of a demarcation point of about five years after my car accident, which we'll talk about later, Yeah, where all of the rejection medication because of the surgical steel and surgical cement, that five-year period was the demarcation point where I thought, okay, I think I'm going to be okay with this because the body is not rejecting all that surgical steel and other stuff that, uh, you know, when you put foreign objects into your body, there's a big problem with that. That was about the demarcation point after a May 17th, 2004 car accident. Again, that we'll talk about. Well, I I was going to say, we will talk about it later, but it would have had to be the five-year mark because... If I met you in 2009, and I've heard the story before about your car accident, and I knew it that happened in 2004. So, yeah, that tracks five years. 
first thing I want to talk about now that we've sort of talked about the fact that we've worked together in radio before, we've also done a podcast together before. Yes, we did. <laughs> it, <laughs> I don't really think it's worth looking up for the audience no. that I have. It's called it, The 11th Hour, and it was just a lot of fun, and it was a way to use somebody else's studio to vent. <laughs> it was, well, here's the thing. It was kind of aimless at yeah. times in what we would talk about, but I think we did it because we were both sort of disenfranchised at the time with our place in the radio business. Yeah. Because exactly. you were you were looking for an honor gig and at that time I'd never had one. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And it was a good excuse to talk to some people that we knew around the country through mm -hmm. social media connections. I remember one lady, Diane Nalatek in uh, Los Angeles, who did an awful lot of beneficial work for veterans mm -hmm. that we talked to. That was probably one of the best interviews with a purpose. Yeah. Because um, purpose, everything else was kind of seat of the pants and blowing smoke and moaning and complaining, <laughs> which, which I'm pretty good at, you know, <laughs> it worked out well. And, and uh, at that point we, took advantage of the platform we were on and cussed up a storm. So you got to love anybody right. that allows you to do that and act like a real adult. Well, we could do that here. I choose not to just because I don't have any real sponsors yet. Uh, <laughs> but at that time, as I said, I had no on-air experience by the end of 2011 when we did that show. And it only lasted about three months. Yeah, It was kind of my idea, so I called myself the host, but... I think most of the on-air responsibility at that time was yours, just because you had the experience and I didn't. Only from a technical standpoint, I think you did a great job in getting your chops about how to host or co-host or lead a conversation. I hope it was helpful. Well, it definitely know. was. And there was one segment of that show that I wanted to bring up here because in a way, it sort of inspired what this show would become. I don't remember how I found out about this person. There's a guy named Zach Anner, mm -hmm. who is a comedian with, cere oh, yeah. with cerebral palsy. Yep, Might have been on one of my friend's Facebook feeds that I first heard about him or something. But he won a show on the Oprah Network from Oprah. Yeah, big time. And when I started researching this guy and the fact that he made that happen, I found this YouTube clip, which I can't find anymore, of Oprah calling him an inspiration. And even then, and I think this is long before inspiration porn was a term. Disabled people knew what it was, but it didn't have a name yet, right? No. So even then I was like, why would he be an inspiration to you? You have everything yeah, no kidding. And then some. Well, Oprah's got enough for like four or five hundred extra people. Right. Give it up. <laughs> Seriously, give it up, Oprah. Let the rest of us breathe here. But you know, you're sucking the oxygen out of the room. It's more about the fact that <laughs> what is there left for her to do? If she's inspired by this guy, what is it going to make her do? I don't know. Hopefully it'll be uh, run around the country, hug people, and give them $10,000 in cash right then and there. Not until COVID's over. Well, you know, she can wrap up in all the cellophane and plastic masks and 
She can hire people to impersonate her. That's how rich she is. That's true. It would be like thinking that you've got the real Santa when, of course, it's just a department store Santa. There are probably a million Oprah elves out there <laughs> who would do. You get a tree and you get duty. a tree. and Yeah, you get a tree and you get a tree. <laughs> exactly. And you inspire me and you inspire me and, and you have a disability and you have a disability. <laughs> NTM, NTM, it's a twister. So, uh, getting back to the old show, though, uh, like I said, it only lasted for three months. We both, I think, went on after that three months to things we enjoyed, and mine lasted basically up until COVID. I did the same thing. I was a DJ for a contemporary music station in Frederick, Maryland. and And you did a solid job, too. I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. Honestly. You know, I don't lay that out lightly. No, thank you very much. I'm glad to have done you proud, but that's not where I was going. <laughs> that's okay. I'll kiss butt anytime, day or night, but without Oprah money. Well, it's not <laughs> like I can give you any money, but I don't mind if people put me over on this show. But <laughs> Yeah. The thing is, in that time of me being a DJ, I never really considered doing another podcast. Because in 2011, the market for them was not as saturated as it is now. Oh, exactly. I mean, we had uh, kind of the rule of the roost uh, with that original one. The platform we were on was not very saturated, although there were a good number of amateurs on there. We didn't see the rise of people like Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan and others who have literally made this a surviving uh, bit of business that they've built their brand with it, you know, uh, to the tune of a couple of million subscribers and a couple of million dollars in monetization. Well, that's true. There's the other side of it as well, which I don't know if you'll agree with or not, but I understand the concept of people who are already famous getting listenerships and making money that way. That's not really why I didn't want to start another podcast. It's more the fact that we're now in a society where anybody who wants one can have one. Yeah. It doesn't take that much. Whether you're a broadcaster or not. Yeah. Which is part of the problem. Well, yeah. And I'll, I'll step up and I'll say, you know, for those of you who have never done it, Listen to others who have, because this is, this is just as important a means of communication as a regular radio station, a TV station, now YouTube channels. And there are some out there who are doing it brilliantly, like the four-year-old kid with a cooking show on YouTube who has a couple of million viewers. Uh-huh. That guy is amazing. This kid who cooks. On YouTube is amazing. Huh. A comedian, Whitney Cummings, who was the force behind the TV series Two Broke Girls. Yeah. I think she has set the pace for comedians and others of that ilk doing podcasts. And really, when you think about it, Jerry Seinfeld's online series, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, 
which varies in time, it varies in topic, location, and even in distribution. I don't know if you can consider that a podcast, but... Well, here's why I say this. It's an alternative bit of content that is not on traditional outlets. Mm -hmm. By traditional, I mean broadcast television and broadcast radio, that if you are podcasting, you've got to bring yourself up to the level of those previous traditional outlets to make an impact and that's finding your niche which this podcast your podcast has done because i don't hear or see too many that are devoted to life with a disability and i think that's important you've made a great leap forward with not only your professionalism but with the the broad range of people you've been able to talk to that speak from the heart about this i think that when disabilities are discussed in this kind of forum or similar forms to this, one of two things is really brought up and emphasized. One would be a lot of what's physically wrong with people who are disabled. Another would be, and this is something I've recently realized and I'm probably gonna make a show down the line. It's people who are disabled really angrily venting about how they're treated by people who aren't almost to the point where these people who are disabled become self-righteous about it. Oh yeah. There are people that are just so fed up by how they are treated by people who are not disabled that I find them hard to listen to. Yeah. It's not even that they're wrong. They're just, they're just not expressing themselves in the right way to get people to listen to them. And yet, there needs to be a crossover audience for things as simple as someone running up behind you to open a door when you don't need the help, when you're perfectly capable of opening a door. Or as I had the experience on New Year's Day, I went out to brunch with a friend, and this guy came running up and said, wait, wait, let me go inside and get them to open the side door because the only thing that was available was a revolving door. Now, for you in a wheelchair, that would have been something else. But for me, since I use canes, I didn't have an issue with it. And I had to tell him three times, no, I'm fine. If I need help, I'll ask for it. And there are great stories that you've had on previous editions here of people coming up, seeing the push handles on the back of wheelchairs, and just assuming that they can latch onto those and propel you forward without asking. And again, that's why I don't have push handles and people try it anyway. Exactly. You know, which can be not only frustrating, but in some cases dangerous, especially if you don't have the physical push handles. What if somebody came up behind you and used your back, put too much pressure or they, you hit a little bump in the sidewalk or whatever, and just pushed you right out of the chair. Those not in the disabled community need to have a more complete understanding of the results of their actions and what it does for the mindset of the person who is disabled. I understand the respect you're trying to give those of us with disabilities and those of us of a certain age as well. I'm in my early 60s and a little gray around the sides and 
sometimes <laughs> I'll get the benefit of that, but that's done with respect. And I would think that those who have a disability who are getting that would believe it to be respect when in fact, if you dig deeper, it's a sense of helplessness on those without a disability who are coming up to help you without asking. Mm -hmm. And I think there has to be a much better understanding of that. Honestly, if we need help, we will ask for it. It also goes to how tight the disabled or handicapable community, all the buzzwords, <laughs> feel. It goes back to when I was going out with a woman who attended Gallaudet University, which here in Washington, D.C., is a school for the deaf. Right. Or partially able to hear, and there are some blind students there. Well, in the period I was going out with her, they had the opportunity to change the chancellor of students there at Gallaudet. And there was a huge uproar. There were protests on campus here in D.C. because they were targeting a candidate for the position who did not grow up deaf, who did not grow up in the deaf community, but was associated through her knowledge of American Sign Language and teaching of the deaf. And the community on campus was having none of that. You're either one of us or you're an outsider. It's wow. why many of them still today refuse to get the cochlear implant behind the ear, that little pad you see that goes to the tympanic nerve in the ear to assist you in hearing. Right. Because they believe most of the deaf community and I'm sure some of them will read this on their transcriber and agree that if you are born deaf or became deaf when you were very young, that's all you've known. You don't want to leave that realm. You don't want the cochlear implant. You don't want any assistance. It would be very much like someone like me being offered the chance to walk. Yeah. And some people might take it. I wouldn't because... I've always said about being in a wheelchair, I have nothing to compare it to. Yeah. So, and besides, if you've got prosthetic legs, you'd be like seven foot six inches tall, for Christ's sakes, Nate. <laughs> well, that, that's a whole new can of worms right there. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but you know, it's all you've known, and that's what you're comfortable with. I want to circle back a little bit because right. everybody who's listening right now just kind of absorb the insight that Steve is giving right now and realize that because I was sort of nervous maybe about starting a podcast, my initial thought was to have Steve as a co-host and you couldn't do it when I started. No, I was very ill. Yeah, unfortunately. And I don't want to say it this way, but that might have been the best thing for me. That Not that you were sick, just the fact that you couldn't do it. Because I, I, I look at it that way myself. I because think. it really forced me to decide what I was going to do. And not to wish illness on myself, but I think it was as well. And I was almost like a proud father watching a baby bird. <laughs> to use the analogy, watching a baby bird leave the nest. <laughs> 
uh, and getting out there and flying on his own. Did you enjoy that box of chocolate covered worms I sent you there, Chris? Just yum, kidding. yum. Yeah. Letting you either fly or free fall was the best way to do this because you've come into your own already. Mm -hmm. This is a highly listenable, entertaining podcast, regardless of whether it's about disability or, you know, cheesecake, whatever. I haven't been told this or anything. I just think if I go too heavy on the disability with the people that I have on, it's going to limit my audience. Yeah. Because there's nothing for non-disabled people to relate to at that point. So my feeling is this is a podcast where, yes, I have a lot of disabled people on and people who are directly related to people with disabilities in some way. I have them on too, but not everything discussed will be about disabilities just because that, well, that would be hard to sustain it. Well, know? first of all, I think it's already been done. Yeah. And face it. It's not like you're the secretary of HHS giving out <laughs> benefits information or, you know, something that is self-sustaining on a regular basis. You're not the head of the department of veterans affairs, giving out telemedicine info. You're just the guy who happens to be, disabled talking with friends one of the reasons it's not really realistic at this point for you to actually be my co-host the whole time i've been doing this i've been doing it on the schedules of other people yeah so i can't ask you to come on zoom as we're doing this now based on the schedule of a third person now that said if you have people that you want to bring to the podcast, I feel it would be appropriate if you join me then. Oh, I'd love to. I'd absolutely love to and take that as an open invitation. You That's know, what I meant for it to be. Hopefully I can talk some friends into just coming on as a surprise. People you wouldn't expect who would love to be a part of this. Everybody that I've had on so far, I know personally, and I know eventually that's going to change, but one of the reasons that I wanted to do that, aside from just knowing all these people with disabilities and different stories about them, is I needed to be comfortable as a host. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. Some traditional radio shows get a test drive where the host does five or ten shows late at night, overnight, on some uh, outlying station before they're stepping up to do their morning or midday or whatever in prime time. Mm -hmm. Or if someone has faith in them, they're syndicated one small market station at a time where they can build the audience and build their resolve and their technique and all that. And then they end up with a hundred or 200 affiliates. So that principle applies here. I can't think of, any principle for tr traditional broadcast that doesn't apply to a podcast. To me, it's just a different platform. Yeah. You want to reach the same big audience eventually. Mm -hmm. You want to you want to be entertaining. You want to drag people from the beginning of your 20 or 30 or 40 minutes to the very end and become for lack of a better phrase and I'll use this gentleman's name on purpose yeah like howard stern who at the peak of his career 
there were so many stories about people who were listening in the morning, driving to work across the country, who would get to their place of business mm -hmm. and sit in the car for another 20 or 30 or 40 minutes or even another hour, even if they were going to be late, just to hear what the end of a particular story was about or to hear the end of a guest interview or just to hear what the hell Howard was going to do next. <laughs> And that's the premise of being a good storyteller and being interesting and so forth. Not to get too deep in the weeds about how we make the donuts on a podcast. No, no. I was gonna I was gonna add yeah, something to that. I'm that's actually, where we're at. I'm actually glad you use the word storyteller. And I wasn't necessarily planning to talk about this, but we'll roll with it anyway. Because we mentioned that we're both wrestling fans. Yeah. There are a lot of wrestlers now that have podcasts. Oh, a ton of them. And I find it very interesting that a lot of those wrestlers that have podcasts, they're very good at what's called cutting promos. Oh, yeah. Big time. Chris Jericho in particular. Well, Chris Jericho is not an example I would use in what I'm about to say because okay. his podcast is good. Yeah, But there are some examples of people who can cut a good promo. And they're not good storytellers. Oh, I see where you're going. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Some of that may be because, and it's not like we don't have the opportunity to do this here with pre-recording the show, right? but with their ability to pre-record until they get it right. Mm -hmm. The great storytellers from the world of wrestling, pro wrestling, who do it, are those who have really been in the trenches like Arn Anderson, mm -hmm. like Jim Ross, JR, yeah, even a Jim Cornette. <laughs> tells great stories from the territory days and the early days of the peak of wrestling in the 80s and early 90s because yeah. he was there. And he's a great storyteller and a good writer to begin with. Those who cut a great promo, as you say, yeah, who are not good storytellers, simply got into the podcast business because of name recognition, yeah, hoping to make a go of it. It'll weed itself out. You yeah. Know? I won't use any names. I think it already has started to kind of weed out. There are some that are not doing it anymore, and I'm sort of grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Even the old WCW general manager, Eric Bischoff, mm -hmm. you can only have so many legends or people who were in the business on yeah. until you run out of a proper guest list where people pay attention to who you're having on. And that's a lot of it as well. How yeah. you book your podcast. Yeah. You could ramble on for 40 minutes and tell great stories by yourself, but you've got to have people that others are interested in as well to draw that audience. And I'm hoping that's what you'll do in terms of storytellers that can relate to the disabled audience, but even more so relate to a general audience to keep them hooked. You know, when Just we wait till, you, wait till you hear the finish of this show. <laughs> <laughs> when we first talked about this podcast, and again, that was the point where you were going to be my co-host before you got sick. Yeah. I wanted to start it in October. That's why I didn't wait. And I already explained that in a promo I did for the show. Yeah. October, 2020. Yeah, I wanted to start it last October 
because that's kind of when the idea sprouted to do it. But in terms of what you just said, the idea will always be to have people on that if I'm telling stories, they will be able to relate to those stories. Yeah. Or the reverse of that. If they're telling stories, I got to be able to relate to them. Yeah. At least be attracted in some way to the story to have interest in just what the hell they're talking about. And that said, even though I am disabled, it's never going to be my goal to talk a lot about myself because going back to the kind of podcast I don't really like, one of them is definitely those that are vanity projects. Oh, self-absorbed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. And that is never going to be what this podcast is. Yeah. Smart. So, yeah. So now that we've talked... <laughs> So extensively we've about 40 minutes about what we want to talk about exactly without actually talking about what we want to talk about yeah <laughs> hopefully we've entertained people so far let's move on i don't know whether you've ever heard the soundbite of john lennon in a recording session with the other beatles in there discussing how to move on in the process and john said how can I talk about what I want to talk about if George is talking about what I want to talk about and Ringo's doing this? And that. I mean, it was really funny because he, <laughs> he flips the script on the rest of them who just won't shut the heck up. But how, how can I talk about this if you won't, you know, anyway. So an awful lot like that. So what do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, we now come to a segment that I like to call I Can't Stand This. From before the show started, I have been wanting to use that phrase just because <laughs> i find it funny as a disabled person just to use it i can't stand this yeah originally that's what i wanted to call the show but you kind of talked me out of that yeah and i'm glad you did because i come i came up way. with something better but i can't stand this now is <laughs> just i'm sorry but the setup for this is is really funny to me exactly that's why i'm doing it. i can't stand this because it could be a million things so you what know? what I can't stand this is now is my referring to something that I've already talked about. And what I'm going to talk about now is who I refer to as the gift that keeps on giving to this show, Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings is a guy. The former Jeopardy champion. Won more games than anybody in Jeopardy history, right? Yeah. But we've talked about him several times on the show. Not you and I, but, you know, other people. Yeah. We've talked about him several times on the show because he had a number of offensive tweets. Yes, he that he, did. That he put out a number of years ago. One of them was, there's nothing sadder than a hot person in a wheelchair. Yeah. Now. He also had one, and this is within the last 20 days, mm -hmm. about disabled children. I missed that one. It was so offensive that I started to think, is this, even though it had a blue check mark next to it, like verified Twitter accounts do. Is it a parody account? I thought, is this a parody account? Has someone hijacked it? And I went back and I looked at the feed because it was retweeted by someone else. Mm -hmm. And no, there's a pattern there. Well, and it's highly offensive to me as well. I can't stand this. So, <laughs> well, and yeah, we're we're offended by that, but we're laughing about the name. I know. Yeah. But he made the tweet that I 
mentioned in 2014. He apologized for it in 2018. But apparently he only apologized to people that called him out for it. Now, another apology has been made. Okay, and somebody sent me this. My friend Stanley Martin Jr., who was on the show before, he Uh sent me this on New Year's Eve. And we're doing this still within the first week of the new year. And it'll come out a couple weeks later because, again, I only release one show a week because i got to edit stuff and all that. Except this show, which goes out unedited. It's so brilliant. Well, I'm sure I won't have to edit it much because we're both pros, right? Yeah. (laughs) Except it might be too long for people. We'll see about that. But here's what Ken Jennings had to say about his history of offensive tweets. Sometimes they worked as jokes in my head, and I was dismayed to see how they read on screen. In the past, I'd usually leave the bad tweets up just so they could be dunked on. At least that way, they could lead to smart replies and even advocacy. Deleting them felt like whitewashing a mistake. Uh... Ken, you have heard of smiley face emojis that could go at the end of those statements so that people don't take them seriously? You antisocial piece of, on the bottom of a shoe, you're a moron for doing it that way, especially targeting a class of people who may not have the perception that you're either joking or that you're doing it for some social relevancy. Boy, that's truly a solid 100% I can't stand this topic. Well, again, I can't stand this is not designed to be what I don't like. It's just things I've already brought up, which I think will be largely things that I don't like anyway, because this is something that keeps resurfacing, that puts a black eye against, well, not only him, but possibly to the disabled community as well. It does. And listen, I'm going to preface this by saying something that a lot of my friends already know. Mm -hmm. I abhor cancel culture. Okay. I really do. Mm -hmm. And boycotts can work in both directions. But Ken is one of three experts that are going to be appearing on a new game show on ABC called The Chase. If this kind of behavior continues... I would have no hesitation in writing to the ABC network and to the sponsors of that show and saying, really, is this the kind of person you're supporting? I'm hesitant to do it because I'm hoping that other people's comments after his missteps will give him a wake-up call. And by that, I don't mean the phrase woke. So you can bury that right now. Again, not being a fan of cancel culture, it's time for somebody to come up behind him and give him a little slap to the back of the noggin and say, knock it off. Well, the last time your place to do stuff like that, and it's completely out of rhythm with society. That's the best way I can put it without cursing. (laughs) And and again, we're trying not to curse on this show, but you know that first of all, that apology that he made was complete garbage. The last time that Ken Jennings came up on this show it was announced that he was going to be, due to the death of Alex Trebek, an interim host of Jeopardy. Yeah. And my idea was not to boycott it or whatever. 
I think people in wheelchairs actually should try out for Jeopardy. Oh, absolutely. There has been, in my memory, and I watched that show religiously with my late mother at 7.30 at the time that it airs here in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Mom was so good with puzzles and trivia and very well read that it was a joy to try to hear compete with her to answer whatever uh, well to give the questions to whatever answers popped up on jeopardy yeah for years and i mean going back even 20 years so the relevancy of that statement is i can only remember one person in a wheelchair competing on jeopardy they were in the center position and there was a special ramp built with a smaller platform to get them up to camera level that's the only time that I can think of a situation where someone with a disability was on the show as a contestant. And I believe there was also one other person, and Jeopardy experts will have to fact check me on this. Mm-hmm. There's another phrase I hate, fact check. Um, <laughs> that a little person appeared as a contestant, I think, in the third position. Mm-hmm. where a platform and side handles were used for stability. And I think that's it. The folks at Sony Pictures and Merv Griffin Productions could correct me on that, but I think that's it, if my memory serves me. Getting back to Ken Jennings just for another minute, like I said, my friend Stan sent me that article, and the thing that we agreed on as far as when I first read it was... He's apologizing because he has to, because he's about to be back on TV. That's it. Yeah. There's a reason for the madness, and in this case, it's to save his earning potential. Right. That's it. Plain and simple. That's it. And I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Can't stand it. I can't stand that. So, like I said, we are doing this show within the first week of the new year. Yep. And... One of the things that happened, I think, right at the first of the year was the new season of a show called Cobra Kai came out. I don't know how familiar you are with that show, but it's pretty popular. Well, I know what it's based on. Okay. I just haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. Of it. No. Pretty, pretty good show, honestly. So I don't want any spoilers for Cobra Kai, especially when you haven't seen it. But by the time this show comes out, season three will have been out for a couple weeks. So hopefully... It won't be too big a spoiler for some people to say that by the end of season two, one of the characters ends up paralyzed. Ah. And basically throughout maybe the first half of season three, they tried to rebuild his leg strength. Uh Uh-huh. And this is a slight spoiler, but... Johnny Lawrence, who is from the original movie, he is this kid's sensei, right? Oh, okay. And Johnny kind of adds to helping him rebuild his leg strength, but he does it in ways that are supposed to be comical in terms of, of how the story works. And I just noticed that a lot in like TV shows or movies or something. Somebody gets injured to the point where they have to use a wheelchair or whatever, and the way in which they're helped 
is not always serious. Yeah. And as someone who, for instance, has been an actor and I guess still is, how do you feel about that? I think that a realistic portrayal of disabilities is important by those who are actually disabled Mm -hmm. to a point. Yes. By example, we are taping this show on Thursday, January 7th. On January 8th, tomorrow, Friday, previous to our air date, Mm -hmm. an episode of Blue Bloods will air where there is a detective who becomes disabled through an accident in a police investigation. And she is campaigning with the Tom Selleck character, Chief of Police Reagan, to be reinstated to be one of the first New York City police detectives in a wheelchair to continue on the job and not just retire with disability. I am really anxious because I've seen the preview to see how it's portrayed because it's set up to be very realistic, which Blue Bloods is quite often. Mm -hmm. But with Cobra Kai approaching it comically, Mm -hmm. as long as they're not making fun of the character for the disability, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd have a problem with it, especially if the character comes back with, I don't want to say snappy retorts, but stands up for themselves and betters the person who is making fun of them or is trying to make light of the disability, you know? Does Again, that make sense? It does. And I'll just give a slight spoiler. I'll give you an idea of how this is You done. know what I hate? I hate spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> no, this won't spoil anything, but... okay. I've already explained this character was paralyzed, right? Yeah. So one of the ways that Johnny decides to kind of wake the kid's legs up is literally to set them on fire and see if he feels it. Holy, what the? Seriously? Yeah. Oh, my God. I hope this doesn't cause some idiot to do this out in the real world thinking that it's the real way to stimulate nerves because yeah first of all and i'll be a little technical in, in this regard having a 30 35 percent paralyzed quad muscle on the right side above the knee nerves don't regenerate no and to set someone's legs on fire thinking that you'd stimulate them into movement is ridiculous well he set his shoes on fire but that's no well, better you yeah. know still what happens if someone tries that in real life and the person is paralyzed to the point where they can't bend down to take care of that, yet it still causes them extreme pain. Right. Burn pain is some of the worst in the world. It's mind-numbingly bad. In that, third that grade, I scalded my a, foot and shop. I couldn't even feel it. You, you what? You scalded what? I scalded my foot in third grade and couldn't even feel it. Wow. Yeah, in the shower. Good Lord. Oh, from the hot water? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. So in this case, we'll have to see if there are any copycat idiots out there who would try this or if there is a complete understanding that this is 
a full-on comedic attempt to bring a lighter side to the subject. Who knows? But I don't really think it would bring on copycats. I'm just more concerned about that kind of situation on television or, and in this case, Netflix, sort of, pardon the pun, but adding fuel to the fire. (laughs) I knew you were going there. Exactly. (laughs) As far as a situation where people already don't know about disabilities and they have preconceived notions and make assumptions and yeah that's really why i wonder how you feel about well, as, about you know, it being addressed comedically on tv and movies and stuff like that i don't have a problem as long as the character gets a nike or adidas deal out of the whole thing right i'll just lay that out there for people to laugh at that was a laugh pause you don't have to edit out oh i'm not editing that out i know i'm just kidding i'd have to see it yeah to see how it's portrayed but it seems to be all right to a point well i meant more of how you felt generally not about specific situations i think you addressed that already uh as long as you're not using the disabled (laughs) person as a punchline that doesn't get some kind of retribution i'm okay with it and if possible unless of course it's an already established character who becomes disabled or immobile Mm -hmm. to try and use actors with disabilities to portray them. That's what I would say. That's a quick button on the issue. It may not surprise you that I have a short list of disabled actors and famous people who I know are disability advocates that I really hope to get on the show one day. One of the things that people don't realize is that there are a number of so-called celebrities Mm-hmm. who not only have disabilities, but in most cases they are invisible disabilities right. that you may not know about. By example, and I'll brag a little bit. By all means. I have worked on the Kennedy Center Honors and on the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Mm-hmm. Two of those episodes for the Mark Twain Prize stand out tremendously to me. One is Bill Murray and the other honored David Letterman. Steve Martin and Martin Short opened the Mark Twain Prize presentation for David Letterman by coming out together. And then uh, backstage, Steve was in not the green room, but in a general holding room that was kind of reserved for him and Martin Short. Mm -hmm. And I realized, and I talked to him about it later, I realized that there were clear tubes coming out of both ears leading around to the back and under his clothing Hmm. I didn't realize that Steve Martin was partially deaf I didn't know that either I didn't either and and I wondered if it was something that had come with age or whether he had always been that way not that he wanted to talk too much about it but there are a number of people who are well known who have invisible disabilities. That's just one of them. And so I'm not surprised that there are well-known folks who are also disability advocates like I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So bring them on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's one thing I don't hate. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, your first presence on the podcast, you weren't actually here. but Oh, what happened? 
Was well, I, I aired that segment that you did about John Mellencamp. Hmm. I just, okay. yeah, I just spliced it into segment? the second episode. Great. And John Mellencamp is an example of someone who is disabled, that, but you wouldn't know it because he has the same disability I do, but the gap in his spine is in a different place. I didn't know that it was near his neck, but that explains why it doesn't appear as if he has trouble walking. Yeah. Because there are people with spina bifida that can walk, but they do it in such an unusual fashion that sometimes they say they look drunk doing it, but you can sort of tell that there is a disability there and they can only walk short distances, but some degree of difficulty. But an example of someone that is not disabled, but that I know is a disability advocate, is a comedian named Christopher Titus. Oh, no kidding. He had a show on Fox. For, he, for he had a show on while. Fox. Yeah. He has a history in his family with mental illness. And that's largely what his show was about. Yeah. And... I first saw him on that show and I kind of kept up with his career since because I just think he's really funny. And I've seen him in person twice. I've seen him perform and got to meet him afterwards. And the first time was in a building in downtown DC, which was very old. And honestly, I could barely fit in their elevator. And when I met him after the show, he said something to me like, thanks for coming out. Couldn't have been easy. So. Nice of him. For him to acknowledge that just made me an even bigger fan of his. Yeah, that's cool. And so I saw him once more after that, maybe nine months later. And not only did he remember me, but that time I got to talk to his wife. And, you know, I don't feel like we're friends or anything, but they would know me if I saw them again. So, Does Chris know that you've been sleeping with his wife? <laughs> <laughs> he will if he listens to the podcast. Chris, Nate's been sleeping with your wife. That's where this story is going. No, that and story is kind of over at this point. As you can stay out on the road doing stand-up, Chris, you keep doing that, and we'll keep getting Nate over to the house. No, the funny thing is his wife, I guess through him, is now a stand-up comedian as well. She opens for him. I was going to say, that would be a great billing to have your wife open for you, especially if part of your act was about your wife. Right. That's awesome. I love that idea. It's actually his second wife. So part of his act actually is about his first wife. And, yeah. I have to be careful of that. There's well, no statutes of limitations about well, again, my exes. I, I have a feeling parts of this are going to be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. You know what? Mm-hmm. I think this is the perfect long-form drive-across-the-country podcast to listen to because it isn't 20 minutes of short song and dance that this is real storytelling and real insight. I think you ought to let it go. And, of course, take out that part where I got Tourette's syndrome and just unleashed on Ken Jennings that no one will ever hear. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Again, I've had people on that don't really have the radio experience that we do. And again, you have three times the experience I do. And I already have... And I I have to say, in October, when you were going to start this, Mm -hmm. and I got very ill, 
yeah. hospitalized for nine days. Mm -hmm. I made the decision because just at that point, my social security disability was approved for a classification of a severe disability that after 32 out of the 45 years I've been in radio and television and film and live events, 32 of those years were in radio and I decided to retire. Right. People ask me today, do you miss it? And I said, no, because I ended on a pretty good high note doing what I wanted to do, although it wasn't music-based, which is how I started. I primarily played oldies from the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. and early 70s as the, the majority of my radio career. But I ended up in news simply because that's where the openings were. And I, I always joked about the fact that I have a degree in broadcast journalism, but it took me 25 years to actually use the degree in broadcast <laughs> journalism. You know? So... Yeah, goes to the old adage, don't quit your day job and have something to back you up. It's like a pro athlete. What do you do when the knees go and you can't perform anymore? Hopefully you'll have a degree in something you like to do. And that's what happened to me. I did it backwards. I started in news. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I'd like to continue this conversation for a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Not to hijack the show. The only thing that I have left beyond this is you. Okay. So it's me. Well, you're I, I'm your saving grace. I'm your safety net. Well, your disability. Okay. You know. Well, then let's talk about it. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about before that. If you've got something in mind, you go ahead. No, this is where I was leading. Okay. And it's a good point because we just talked about my retiring from radio after 32 out of the 45 years, mm -hmm. and I still do a lot of voiceover. I still do on-camera stuff, and I still, if I can, help in the production of live events. But about three or four years ago, when I started to have to take care of my mother as she aged, and she had some heart issues and some other issues, not to get into her illnesses, right? I realized I was having more difficulty in being mobile with the combination of age and disability. And it wasn't until mom passed away in October, 2019, that I realized now is the time I need to take care of myself. Yeah. And this goes to the topic of non-birth disabilities, essentially non-natural disabilities that are caused by an outside force like an accident PTSD, situational disabilities. And I want to tell people about this so that you'll have a complete understanding mm -hmm. of where I'm at and, and what has happened to me physically. On May 17th, 2004, I was driving from Annapolis, Maryland to Washington, D.C. to go to work at night. And since you're listening to this, I will describe for you the situation so that you'll understand it. Traffic reporters describe highways as lanes one through whatever from the slowest lane to the fastest. So lane one is to the furthest right. It's the slowest. Lane four on a highway would be the fast lane. So mm -hmm. lanes one, two, three, and four. All right. 
So at about 1120 at night, driving from Annapolis, Maryland, to go into work at WTOP, which is an all-news station here in D.C., and to get there by midnight, wasn't that big of a deal, but lanes one, two, and three were closed down for road construction. There was a very light, light rain, but it made the roads a little slick because, as you know, when rain starts, the oil on asphalt rises to the top, makes it slick. At that point, because Route 50 from Annapolis to D.C. is a major east-west route that takes you to the Capitol Beltway, which then leads you to the major north-south routes of Route 95, where most of the trucking is. So in front of me, there were a lot of 18-wheelers, and I could see ahead that this work zone was going to open up pretty quick. So I called the traffic department at WTOP, and I told the person who was on the air, I told Ralph Siegel that first I was going to make it by midnight. And secondly, this closure he had been talking about opens up at this point, and I described the point, just before the Beltway around Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, which was an area on Route 50 that wasn't well lit. About 10 minutes later, I had moved over from lane four, where we had all gone through the work zone, over to lane two to let the 18-wheelers pass, because they had some place to go. I knew I was going to make it to work on time. I didn't have an issue. Well, in the darkness of that area, in lane two, a woman who supposedly was from Nicaragua. I believe it was either Nicaragua or Guatemala, but we stuck with Nicaragua for a particular reason because she had, before they were allowed to have them now, a fake driver's license. Her car had stalled out, a dark-colored vehicle, and we've come to learn that it was an electrical problem. Even with that, she should have known to let her car drift to the shoulder to get it out of a traffic lane. She and her daughter, well, I think was maybe eight or nine years old, preteen nonetheless, were standing on the side of the road while her car, with no lights, no flashers, no flares, nothing to mark it, was in lane two. Now, think about this for a moment. Coming out of a work zone where you were going about 45 miles an hour, as opposed to the regular roadway where it is marked at 65 miles an hour, I had only started to accelerate maybe 100 yards down the road after the work zone opened up. So I was only going about 48, 50 miles an hour tops. I hit the back of her car, square on. It pushed it to the side of the road. My car spun out. The front of my car was accordioned with the engine going down the mounts to the ground and scraping on the ground as I ended up in a T formation, the letter T, against the slow lane berm on the shoulder, okay? Mm -hmm. Thank God for two things. And I don't invoke the word God that often, but in this case, I will. The driver of an 18-wheeler pulled over immediately and cut me out of the seatbelt and pulled me out to the ground 
to the shoulder. Again, light rain. Because with the damage to the front of the car, there was danger of a fire. You don't know where the gas lines had ruptured or whatever. Secondly, and this is the big deal, there was a Maryland State Police sergeant traveling in the other direction. At the first cutout in the concrete berm between the eastbound and westbound lanes, he flipped around, came back up, called for the EMTs, and started to divert traffic. Well, two things <laughs> happened that were kind of funny. First of all, at 11.32, this accident happened. At 11.38, because this radio station, WTOP, does traffic reports on the 8s, I hear my friend Ralph Siegel talk about a brand new accident on Route 50 oh, heading no. into town. I hear Ralph describing my accident coming out of the speakers in my car. <laughs> The second thing that was funny, the Maryland State Police Sergeant leaned down to me, and I'm literally flat on the ground. I have to be, and I'll describe why in a minute. He said, sir, since the driver cut you out, I have to ask you for the record. Were you wearing your seatbelt? I looked up at him, and this is the honest truth. I said, Sergeant, not only was I wearing my seatbelt, I'm coming back from Annapolis, having just recorded your click it or ticket commercials. And he just busted up laughing <laughs> of all things. That's perfect. It, that gave some relief because really this was the kind of pain that could have put someone into shock. Yeah. And it wasn't until we got to Washington Hospital Center that I figured out why. See, when you wear a seatbelt, and I will say my airbag did not deploy. I was in an accident, and mine didn't deploy either, but I didn't get oh. hurt. So, yeah. so seatbelts and airbags are meant to protect your chest and head from injury. I'm 6'2", and my legs hit the underside of the dashboard and compressed back into my hip. Eesh. Yeah, I know. Shattering pelvis bone, separating the femur from the hip joint. What it also did, because of the force of the impact, the seatbelt across my chest broke two of the very small rib bones that are up below your clavicle, okay? Mm -hmm. But that was a good thing because it left bruising and a puddle. Not a puddle, like a little bubble, a little blister of blood. So as they're undressing, well, as they're cutting my clothes off, and I'll never get another pair of Jordache jeans. I'm just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> as they're cutting my clothes off, the emergency room doctor in the triage area realizes because of the markings around the two small ribs right below the neckline that there could be a blood clot. Oof. Okay. So the first thing they said to me was, Mr. Ray, because of what we have to do, to reset your hip temporarily, we're going to have to put you in a forced coma. Otherwise, what we have to do will be so painful it will put your body into shock. Oh, man. Okay? I gave them permission, and they said, and the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to take you to get an MRI immediately of your chest to see if there is indeed a blood clot below that area. 
Well, they did all that. They ran a wire up under my arm and they caught a pulmonary embolism just before it hit the atrium of the heart, which is the top section. So one, that was a lifesaver. Two, they had contacted mom who came to the hospital. Six or seven hours later, I'm brought partially out of the coma. Mom is sitting there. I have, and I don't want to be too descriptive, but I have brought up a lot of blood into the basin next to me. Right. But the pulmonary embolism did not go to the heart. So I'm alive because of that. That, and what they have told me, is that because I was only going 45, 50 miles an hour and not 65, as was posted, Mm. I'm still here. So the surgery itself, and thank goodness for this man, Dr. Stephen Gunther, who is the head of orthopedics at Washington Hospital Center. As it turns out, Dr. Gunther, when he was just barely an intern into residency, had fixed my dislocated kneecap when I was in high school. It was one of the first things he ever did. And he remembered it because it was one of the first operations he ever did. He remembered my name as kind of a reference point because I still had the old caterpillar-type scar on my right kneecap, which is what you were left with until surgery advances came along that left you without a major scar. Right. So what they did... Three long surgical steel pins were driven into the femur to reattach. A surgical chain was used, and attached to that chain are 12 surgical steel pins that hold the pelvic bone pieces together, and then surgical cement is used to hold that assembly together. So altogether, about 16 pieces of surgical steel plus surgical cement and... When they finished with that, and I was brought back up to the room to recover, and I'm fast-tracking the story a little bit, Mm -hmm. they had to use another pin across above my kneecap, driven through the skin under the quad muscle, to hold my leg in one of those secure braces with a strap underneath so that my leg would not move, that it would be able to heal, and that nothing higher than that would be disturbed in movement. And that they did while I was awake. Anesthetized, but awake. Um, So with all this, it took a good six months in a wheelchair, then to a very heavy four-wheeled walker, not the kind that grandma uses with pins at the end, but four wheels on them and a little seat that came down for another eight months. Then to a quad cane, which means there are four points for stability at the bottom of it, and then to a single cane. This took about a two, two and a half year process. Along the way, while I'm still in the hospital, which took about a month to get out of, that's a long stay. Yeah. But the severity of the injury is such that it required it. I had my spine fused. I was only in the hospital for nine days. Wow. That's the difference between then and now. Part of the reason for that was my insurance company wouldn't cover any longer than that. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. Two points. First of all, the hospital administrator came and said, if you sign these forms, you will immediately begin to receive Social Security disability. 
And I asked what that meant. And they said, well, you won't be able to work anymore because there were earnings limits on it. Right. And that's it. You'll get this amount, which at that time in 2004 was only about $1,100 a month. Yikes. I mean, seriously, even for full disability. That's not much to live on then or now. And I thought about it and I thought about it and I realized I am at a point in my career where I can't just stay at home the rest of my life. I was advancing quite well and earning a pretty good amount of money. So I refused to sign it. They came back to me two or three times to try and get me to sign full disability again. I said, no, I'm not giving up. Secondly, about four or five weeks into the hospital stay as I was getting ready to be discharged, the letter came to my house that said, Dear Mr. Ray, please remit the amount of $198,652.12 immediately. Because the Nicaraguan woman had no insurance. She had the Maryland uninsured motorist fee, which has a cap on it, of $20,000. And so with the help of the hospital, I assigned the award from any legal action to them. And they took over the case to go after the woman, the car manufacturer, the airbag manufacturer, any of the deep pockets that could have been involved in this. And they wrote off the debt because essentially there was no way I could pay it. And they could, if their legal team went after all the right people. You fast forward to about a year or two ago, again, his mom passed away, and I realized I've got to start taking care of myself. And I think it's because I was so focused on dealing with home nursing care for mom and rehabilitation hospitals and all the other ins and outs of two and a half years of her heading to end of life care. Yeah. That I wasn't taking care of myself. So with seniority, I'm now 63. The accident is 16 years behind me. I realized maybe I need to file for disability now. I had only gotten a blue placard or handicap plates maybe eight or nine years ago. I always oh, tried wow. to walk or go where I needed to go because I didn't always need the cane. But as things got worse again, I did. And because of the pandemic, the social security offices around the country were closed and people were working from home. So it took about 11 months of what is normally a three month process to get social security disability. And now I am happy at home retired for the most part, still able to do plenty of voiceover work. But on occasion, I need two canes to stand and walk rather than just one. I try to stretch. I try to go to the grocery store once a week so that I can walk the entire store, you know, to stretch out. I know that there are grocery delivery services that are available, but I want to try and remain as mobile as I possibly can and not just be at home and veg out, collect my check and my union pension and all that kind of stuff and give up. I do not want to give up. And I don't think I will. I've been strong-willed to get through a lot of this. The other thing, during the original accident, during that recovery period, they hang a morphine bag for pain. 
and you are given a button that you hit with your thumb to trigger the delivery of the morphine. I was playing that thumb button like it was a biggest slot machine. <laughs> now, there are limits to it. It won't deliver if it has just delivered an IV shot of morphine. But they told me they're weaning me off of that and going at the time to Vicodin and Tramadol and things with codeine in it and sending me home with prescriptions for all of that. Well, I weaned myself off of all the opioid painkillers as soon as I possibly could. I went cold turkey and I pushed through with all kinds of relaxation and self-focusing techniques to push through the pain simply because I did not want to become addicted to those opioid-based painkillers. Not to stop you, but again, when I had spinal fusion, the only thing that really worked for me to relieve the pain was Percocet. And honestly, I didn't get addicted to it, but with the number of refills that they yeah. that the doctors were willing to give me for prescription, I easily could have. Oh, yeah. Fast I don't fix. know how I didn't. I don't know how I didn't either. I mean, it's a fast fix. I kept a half a bottle of Vicodin for a good two years as a backup, just in case I had a really bad pain-filled day. Right. So to get to the end of this story, this disability is a non-birth natural situation disability. Right. That at times is visible. Most of the time it's not. Even when I work on a, a film set, I will take my cane with me and I will tell the assistant director, look, I need this for some mobility, but when we get to the scene, I will leave it to the side or under a table or wherever. It'll be out of the scene. Mm -hmm. And you can count on me to walk without a limp. Not at great speed, but at a natural pace and get through it and they always appreciate that i say to most of the assistant directors don't rewrite or take me out of something because of this it shows your strength that you're willing to cast a disabled actor for one and secondly you're giving me an opportunity to work you know my talents otherwise you never would have hired me so don't let this be a hurdle for you to have to reconfigure anything I will work around what you need to have worked around to make this happen. Right. And that, I think, is part of the lesson of how the regular public, I didn't want to use the word normal, the regular public can deal with those of us with disabilities. Just give us an opportunity. We'll deal with what we have to deal with. And unless there's an actual hurdle we can't get through, which we will tell you about. Just let us do our thing. Let us perform whatever task it is we need to perform in the workplace or in public, whether it's going through a door or up a ramp or carrying something or whatever it happens to be, getting in and out of a vehicle. Don't be there to be a hero unless we ask for it. We're just as able to perform most everyday tasks as you are and unless it's someone who might have to use a mouth control a breathing tube to 
advance their wheelchair or something where they are unable to speak but still have the ability to signal you. Just be sensitive to the fact that when you're not there, we're still living our life 24-7. We're still getting it done without you behind us pushing our wheelchairs or opening doors or carrying packages or feeling sorry for us. We're still doing this 24 hours a day, whether you're there or not. So just be respectful and more so be understanding without being patronizing. That's what I would say to put a button on this whole deal. It's kind of a big leap as far as like telling your personal story and then going right into that. But you actually gave me an idea for another show. Oh, a new show. An, well, another. I hate when that happens. Exactly. <laughs> you gave me an idea for a new episode as far as, well, there are definitely people that want to do things for us, but there's another class of people that I think understand we want to do things for ourselves, but they'll almost not understand that we do have limits. An example of what I mean by that is I'm a big workout guy. I like to lift weights and stuff like that. Yep. So at one point in the last few years, I had a number of trainers just to try things out, get new ideas. And I'm not going to name any names, but I know that one of them wanted me to do something that I know would have been dangerous. Oh. I go up so on I refused to do it. Cat. No, he wanted me to... <laughs> He wanted me to do an exercise from a platform that had no backing to it. So Ooh. I would have fallen for sure. Yeah. And so I refused to do it. And he kind of, I guess there were a lot of things like that that I refused to do. And I think it came down to him just not really knowing how to train someone in a chair. Yeah. But he, he, he got didn't claim he knew how. No, beforehand, no, right? I just wanted to give him a shot. But he kind of gotcha. got frustrated with me. And oh. long story short, on that, he's not even a trainer anymore. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, he's bagging groceries somewhere at the. He's more know, successful than that. Movie. Again, I don't want to use any names. Okay. If I if I tell you what he does, people will know probably. I'm just going to leave that alone. But generally, the last question I ask people on the podcast if they have a disability, is if they've ever been called an inspiration, whether that story is funny or not. I'm going to do something different with you. Oh, can I answer that anyway? And then we'll... Well, if you have an answer, I didn't really expect it. I didn't... I have an answer. I didn't really expect <laughs> you to, but go, go ahead. It goes to recovery. Okay. When I was in the wheelchair, I ballooned up to 337 pounds. Right. Dr. Gunther, during a follow-up exam, said, you know, for every pound you take off, you take four pounds of pressure off your hip and knee. That in itself was inspiration for me to get off my ass in the wheelchair and do something about it. It took 18 months, but I went from 337 pounds to 204 pounds, which is like losing an entire Justin Bieber. Uh, <laughs> I've lost a, a metric Bieber. I met you at a point where you were losing the weight. Yeah. Yeah. The inspiration is always, how did you do that? Well, 
the reality of it was at the time I was producing the Washington Nationals radio network from their first season in 2005 onward. And we would normally eat at night. You know, we'd start the game at a usual 7.05 and round about uh, 8 o'clock, we'd order some food in to the uh, radio station and eat around 8.30 or 9. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the whole package ends around 11 and I'd be home and on a full stomach go to bed. Well, the change was I started parking further away to try and walk more, drank a lot more water, and stopped eating after 8 p.m. Because with that additional weight, I also had developed adult-onset type 2 diabetes. Mm. With diet, I got rid of that. I got rid of type 2 diabetes. Good for you. and, And went again from 337 to 204. The inspirational part has always been because of that weight loss and how I did it and the fact that, face it, I'm just a handsome son of a bitch now because of it, because I can see my jawline. Well, it takes one to know one, right? Yeah, exactly. And I don't have man boobs anymore. Here's the thing I'll <laughs> say about weight loss. Like, I, I'm, I'm not 100 pounds overweight. I might be maybe 10 pounds overweight, right? That's not bad. It's not too bad, but first of all, it's hard to lose weight when you're in a wheelchair. I was going to say... Does that weight include the wheelchair or not? Because <laughs> maybe you could lose the extra 10 pounds if you just get your ass out of the wheelchair and weigh yourself that way. Well, then I would have to weigh myself from bed, and that's not... <laughs> no, that's the whole the sling weight process that they use in a hospital. No, you don't want to have to go through that. Ooh, no, definitely I not. That. I it's, hate that. It's like that scene on The Simpsons, I wash myself with a rag on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> for those who can't see it because it's a podcast i almost passed hot tea through my nose yeah you almost spit Laughing. it right out oh man um <laughs> <laughs> but as much as i try it can be hard to exercise from a wheelchair it can be hard to lose weight in that way and radio has been great to me in a lot of ways but that's one thing that has been good about covid is when I was more heavily involved in radio, I would eat what I could when I could and not really worry oh, yeah. about it. And yeah, I haven't actually. become unhealthy because of it, but it did cause me to gain some weight. So, you know, I've taken some of that off during COVID, but again, it's harder to exercise now. Yeah, so, <laughs> In some areas, gyms aren't open and not that you need a gym to exercise, but it's right. just, you know, I like the fact that for days on end, I don't have to shower or wash my hair or do anything but just sit on the sofa and watch the prices right there's that joke in the radio business that i have been told by someone wherever i've worked that in radio you could literally show up to work every day in your pajamas and no one would know which i did in los angeles did you doing the morning show several times and then changed in my office after the show was over at 9 (laughs) a.m I literally came into work in my PJs or in sweatpants and a robe and then changed in the office afterwards. So last question I'm going to ask you, and okay, this is usually... Gee, I, I hope it's like the actor's studio where you ask me what my favorite curse word is. Yeah, we're not doing It's always that. the last question. We'll have to beep. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. What's the question? So 
This is usually reserved for people who are not disabled and just okay. work with them. But I feel it appropriate to ask this of someone who is now disabled but once was not. Yeah. So what is a misconception that you had about the disabled community before you were part of it? Oh, the misconception was that all disabilities were visible. Mm-hmm. When in fact, there are so many classifications from people who have severe type one diabetes to mental illness, PTSD, deafness. There's a whole range of disabilities that are not visible. I thought my misconception growing up was that, oh, they're in a wheelchair. Oh, they're using a cane. Oh, whatever the case may be that all disabilities were visible. Hmm. Huge mistake. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because as this show progresses, we are going to have, and I say we again, it's not necessarily you, but we are going to have a wider range of disabilities as far as I've had mostly people in wheelchairs so far. That's not always going to be the case. And the only one that I haven't figured in yet, and I've said this before, is people with hearing impairment. Oh, okay. I know people fluent in American Sign Language, yeah, right? me too. Having it translated is not the problem. The problem would be, I don't want that to come across on a podcast as if I were just having a conversation with the translator. I think at that point, Nate, you'd probably want to do a special YouTube version of the podcast with you, the visuals. YouTube is coming. YouTube is coming. As, as you record this Zoom call, you lift the audio, but in that case, you air the whole thing yeah. as you're recording the, uh, the Zoom call. I just got to figure out a way smart. to incorporate video. You can do it. Yeah. It's been done before. I think it's called television. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's been an adventurous two hours. It really has. I'd love this conversation, and I promise you I will keep my ears and eyes open and any other orifice that may need to be open to... Um, well, that's all for this show. I mean, again, yeah, you know... I'll keep it... I'll we're keep we're it trying open. to be clean. I know to think about special guests that I may want to pop in with. Yeah. We'll go from there. But this was lively and fun, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Well, you're welcome back anytime you want to do it. We call each other brother, and in this case, I think we mean it. That we're pretty close, pretty tight, and uh, you know I'd do anything for you to ensure some success with this podcast. You are, in my mind, have always been a superstar in the making brother i appreciate that brother and you know the things that we have in common including the disability i always had that in my mind that that's why we called each other that yeah right and that and a phrase that you developed we're Gimptastic. both gimp tastic absolutely <laughs> And that but just now that I have handicap plates on my car, I think I'm going to get a bumper sticker that says that with a big red arrow that points to the plates. It says Gimptastic. This um, has been a Gimptastic episode. Yeah, Gimptastic. Uh... <laughs> Close it out. Tell people goodbye, and I will see you next time. 
promise. That's just Steve's way of reminding me that he's got three times the broadcast experience that I do. But you know what? I've got about that much more experience at being disabled than he does. So on a podcast like this, that's a push. I want to thank Steve for being this week's inspiration, and thank you all for listening. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join our Discord server. Links to those are going to be in the description when I put the show up. Until next week, this is Nate Lurie saying, you don't always have to do a lot to inspire others.